good afternoon, and good evening. It's the Here Comes the Pain podcast. I'm your host, Joel Payne. We're presented by Hip Politics Network. Lots of great content there. I would recommend that you check out. You can follow the show on Instagram at Here Comes the Pain Pod. That's at Here Comes the Pain P O D. And you can follow me on Twitter at P A Y N E D C. That's at Pain D C. So much to get into today's show. Taking a short break from the podcast feed, but have been certainly paying attention to what's going on in the world. Lots going on to discuss, and we'll get right into it. We're going to focus on two big topics today. One, we're going to dig into the life and legacy of the late great Congressman John Lewis. Of course, last week we lost the congressman after a valiant battle with pancreatic cancer. We're going to talk about his legacy. We're also going to talk about how we as a society like to remember these types of legends and these types of icons. I have some thoughts on that. And then we'll spend a little bit of time towards the end of the podcast talking about the controversy surrounding uh, some of the members of uh, Vice President Biden's VP search committee and some of the comments that have come out about Kamala Harris. We're going to do a bigger conversation about the VP candidates next week. I've got some good guests that are coming to join the podcast next week. And so I'll save a longer conversation about all the different candidates and what they all bring to the table and almost doing a handicapping of the race. We'll do that next week. But I I do want to talk about this phenomenon with Kamala Harris, with some of the criticism and critique that she's gotten recently. And I want to talk about how we got there to that point where you have members of the vice president's inner circle, particularly members of that search committee, openly criticizing Kamala Harris outside that committee. I want to talk a little bit about how we think about ambition and how we also think about how we put those types of committees together. So lots to get into there. But let's start with Congressman John Lewis. And I had some thoughts recorded, actually, about a week ago about the congressman uh, immediately in the aftermath of the news of his passing. And they were certainly appropriate and they were certainly heartfelt. But something that dawned upon me is that we're going to have a week of remembrances and condolences. And there's going to be so much that's going to be said about his legacy. I thought it might make sense to wait a few days. And by the way, I'm really glad I did that. Um, Along with hearing some of the remembrances of the congressman, I also actually had a chance to speak about the congressman's legacy. As many of you know, I'm a contributor for CBS News, and I was able to join the telecast on multiple occasions this week to talk about what Congressman John Lewis meant to me and some personal remembrances and what I witnessed as somebody who worked in the Congressional Black Caucus for a Congressional Black Caucus member at the same time, obviously, that John Lewis was there. Also someone who worked on the Hillary Clinton campaign in 2016. And I had a very memorable personal interaction that I'm going to get into here in a moment. When we are thinking about John Lewis in particular, I think it's so important that we give the legacy full, unvarnished, straight no chaser without trying to sanitize how we want to think about this man. And by the way, that does not mean that I'm encouraging folks to not share good, positive, warm remembrances of Congressman John Lewis. There are plenty of them. But I think it's important to put in context the the eras that he touched um, in America, the different generations that he intersected with, and how the public viewed John Lewis at those different intersections. 
I said this on a number of occasions over the past week, again, as I was doing some media appearances and as I was talking to some friends and, you know, people in government who really had the same experience as I did as an admirer and at times as someone who was able to walk the same halls of Congress that the congressman did. But, you know, I was sharing a remembrance of the idea that John Lewis had the gift that so many of his contemporaries did not have. He had the gift of old age. If you think about the folks who John Lewis shared the stage with at the March on Washington in 1965, when, by the way, he was 25 years old. Just think about the impact that that man had at 25 years old and that he was on that stage and that he had that prime of a role at that historic gathering is really awe-inspiring. But again, he had the gift of years, of age, He had the gift of being able to grow into a, for lack of a better term, a a cuddly, warm, beloved old man. Martin Luther King did not have that gift. Medgar Evers did not have that gift. Um, You know, the, the three civil rights workers in Mississippi who were the inspiration for the movie Mississippi Burning, they didn't have that gift. Um, Schwerner, Goodman, and Cheney, they, they didn't have that gift. So you had so many of his contemporaries that did not get to grow to a point where, frankly, they became the majority opinion. There was a period of time where Congressman John Lewis held the non-majority, the unpopular opinion in America, where he was an outsider, where he was a dissident, where he wasn't beloved, where he uh, instead was accused of being a troublemaker, a rabble rouser. People like to talk about this idea of good trouble that the congressman would bring up so often. That was kind of his catchphrase and one of the more memorable things he would talk about. And while that's a a, a cute idiom, and and again, I don't say that derisively, but that's that's a clever idiom that the congressman came up with, it really does take on a different form when you contemplate that there was a period of time where the things that John Lewis were doing was not considered good trouble. It was considered to be a threat to democracy, a threat to society. He was considered to be somebody who was an outsider. You know who he was considered to be and what he shared a lot of allegiance with? The same people that we've watched all summer protesting on the streets of America. And yes, I know that John Lewis really believed in practice and embodied the spirit of Nonviolence, and he certainly did. And you know, you've seen some of the demonstrations on the street this summer become a little bit more violent. But I'm talking about the heart of the Black Lives Matter demonstrations that we've seen this summer. Those have not been violent, those have been overwhelmingly peaceful. They have been led by people who have been preaching nonviolence, they have been preaching vigilance, but they have been preaching peaceful, constructive demonstrations. And that's what John Lewis was all about. I got the question on TV this week whether I thought John Lewis was with the Black Lives Matters protesters and whether or not he supported what they were doing. And it was the easiest question I could answer. It's absolutely. Forget for a moment that in his final weeks, the last public appearance, I believe, was the congressman's appearance at what is now Black Lives Matter Plaza, which is a mere two and a half miles from where I'm sitting recording this podcast right now um you know on 
the the cross streets of 16th and H Street, which are on the back end of the White House. Folks here in the Washington, D.C. area know that area to be the area that's adjacent to Lafayette Park. That has become hallowed ground in in so many ways. And I thought the congressman, um, obviously, um, at an advanced stage of the cancer that he was fighting and that he ultimately um, would would lose the battle with, um, I think the congressman was making a very purposeful message by using his last public moments and his last public appearance to stand on that ground in a moment of reflection. It's a very famous picture. There's one with him and D.C. Mayor Mira, Mira Bowser. There's another one with him standing just in deep reflection. And I think what the congressman was trying to say and was trying to convey with that was that he saw allegiance with those protesters and he saw the work that they were doing to be an extension of the work that he did some 50 plus years ago. I think Congressman John, John Lewis wanted to make sure that there was no um, confusion about where he stood in terms of the matters of today and that he saw brothers and sisters out on the street that were continuing the same work that he did decades ago. And so I think that's really important to, to call out. In many ways, I would argue that the congressman took that time and by that act of standing on that ground and you know taking those pictures there and allowing himself to become a part of the story, and I think he blessed that ground. I, I really do. I think he was a part of the process of almost making that into sacred, hallowed ground that's been reclaimed, by the way, by the protesters. Um, if you just go back about a month and a half ago and you remember that's where the president infamously and disgustingly cleared out those peaceful protesters with tear gas and with rubber bullets and with all kinds of military grade tactics just to take a damn photo op in front of that church that no one who worked at the church knew about and that two members of his cabinet had to apologize for uh, the secretary of defense and the joint chiefs of staff because they understood that they were being used as props by the president. So that started as becoming a very infamous area that was associated with some of the worst abuses of uh, military style power that Trump has tried to exercise over those protesters. And I think John Lewis and the work obviously of those protesters and the work of those who are at the heart of that movement has made that hallowed ground. And so I, I, I do think that's important to call out. And just the idea that John Lewis really had to allow the United States, allow American society to catch up to him. Uh, I was listening to the eulogy that was given by Reverend Raphael Warnock, who, by the way, is going to be a very competitive candidate in that Georgia Senate runoff um, that's expected later this year. Of course, there's two Senate races in Georgia. There's one that John Ossoff is running against David Perdue. There's another that was the, the vacancy was created that there's a number of candidates that are running and, and Reverend Raphael Warnock who is a, a very infamous uh, pastor infamous is the wrong word a very famous well-known pastor um, in the Atlanta area is also a candidate for but Reverend Warnock gave a beautiful eulogy along with many of the eulogies that were given that day and during that eulogy Reverend Warnock said John Lewis loved America until America was ready to love him back. And I thought that was just such a perfect encapsulation of 
who John Lewis was in that moment. Again, I think that just reading that quote without context might suggest uh, a passiveness about John Lewis and a lack of strength or a lack of backbone, and that would be a mistake to do that. I, I don't I don't read that into that type of a quote or that type of reflection about him whatsoever. I think what the Reverend was saying was that he saw what America could be before America understood what it could be. And he saw the end of the rainbow, so to speak. He saw what was on the other side um, of the trail. If America would just follow the ideals that we profess to believe in, as opposed to the norms of society of that day. You know, John Lewis was a passive, um, you know, someone who stood on the sidelines and, um, you know, passively stood by. Um, so many of the things that we're enjoying today could not have happened. Um, there's uh, obviously President Barack Obama gave a wonderful eulogy of the congressman at his funeral this week. And one of my favorite anecdotes is when Barack Obama was elected in 2008, one of the things he did was he took a picture from Inauguration Day, I believe it was, and he wrote on it in handwriting, because of you, John, and he gave that picture with his handwriting and with that note to John Lewis. And of course, because of you, John, suggesting that the Barack Obama presidency, Barack Obama um, as a American political figure, as the first black president, that only happens with the work of John Lewis. So I think so many young black political figures, uh, candidates, people who are in elected office, people like me who were staffers who really only saw what the possibilities of being a young black person in politics could be because of the sacrifices of John Lewis. Um, I think that that was so poignant for so many of us. I also think too, it's important to think about Lewis's legacy in multiple different prisms. There's Lewis as the kind of young activist. And again, it's important not to sanitize history because, yes, we do love John Lewis as this peaceful, easygoing, beloved, older figure in his later years. But John Lewis was a badass early on. And I'm talking about when he was 21 years old and when he... Um, was studying at American Theological Seminary in Nashville, Tennessee. By day and by night, he was desegregating lunch counters in Nashville. In 1961, at 21 years old, he was a part of a small group that was doing that. He was a part of the first group of Freedom Riders in 1963. You know, you can't tell the story of the Civil Rights Movement without John Lewis. And, and that, that's what I keep coming back to as I think about his legacy. But, you know, there's the young activist Lewis who was not, again, that sanitized version of history that I think sometimes we like to think about. You know, when John Lewis spoke at the March on Washington in 1965, you got to remember the tensions that were within the American, um, you know, civil rights movement for black Americans at that time. Yes, you had King and you had the Diane Nashes of the world and you had um, the C.T. Vivians and Andrew Young and folks like that, who were very much within, I would call, the mainstream of the civil rights movement. They wanted to kind of work within the system. They wanted to influence the influencers, and they preached the nonviolence because they wanted to bring on white moderates, and they wanted to bring on allies who could really help make the case for 
um, you know, changing um, society. They wanted to make the case for civil rights reform, for voting rights reform, all of those things. But they wanted to do that with the support and with the help of our white allies. You had another group of folks who were within that movement who, you know, would have accepted the help of the allies, but they really didn't care if they got those allies on board and were determined to get equal rights and equal representation for black folks, for black Americans, you know, by any means necessary. And of course, I'm, you know, there's the Martin Luther King piece of that. There's the Stokely Carmichael. There's the SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee piece of it, which again, they were all a part of the same movement. They were all pointed in the same direction, but they had very different approaches. You know, Lewis actually lost a lot of favor within SNCC um, between uh, the years of 63 and 66 when he was the chairman of SNCC because he spent so much time working so closely with King and with Andrew Young and kind of the folks in the um, SCLC, right, the Southern Christian, Christian Leadership Conference, which was very much part of the mainstream of the civil rights movement. Um, Lewis was viewed by a lot of his SNCC counterparts as somebody who had really been for lack of a better term, co-opted by King and the mainstream part of the movement. So Lewis, by speaking at that March on Washington in 1965, was really bringing together the different flanks and the different bridges of the civil rights movement, which is a feat in itself, because the idea that he could stand there and he could represent, you know, this, this generational shift in the movement these young folks, again, Lewis was 25 years old when that happened. So he was very much um, nominally, he was in allegiance with his counterparts at SNCC, right? But probably spiritually, I think John Lewis was always a little bit more comfortable with working through the system. I think that was reflected through his life. But um, he had that tension that he had to work through. Um, in 1966, he lost the chair race for SNCC to Stokely Carmichael. And that's something that, you know, if you actually do some research into, you know, some of the things that John Lewis said later in his life and um, later in his career, that was something that always stuck with him. I think he understood the politics around it, but it, it, it was interesting to read that. I mean, this was, again, we think of him as this, you know, saintly old man, which he certainly was. And I believe the term saint um, we probably use a little too much, but I actually do think that John Lewis could very easily, the case be made for him as an American saint. But we think of him as the saint, but we don't think of him sometimes as this kind of like living organism who was competitive and who um, had, you know, a healthy ego like all of us do and wanted to achieve and wanted to kind of have his way um, be the way that his, his, you know, colleagues followed. And I, I think it's really interesting and compelling, and I, I'd encourage anybody to go back and do some research and read some of the interviews that he's given over the years. He gave a number of oral histories. Um, if you go back to the 70s and the 80s and the 90s, um, I think it's it's really worthwhile to do that. And it was it was it was good going back and kind of a a good exercise for me to go back this week and do that, obviously in preparation for a lot of the comments I had to make about the congressman when I was um, appearing on TV during the memorial services about him. Um, so I, I think, again, just to recap, I think there is John Lewis who 
was initially the outsider and the dissident that had to be patient for America to come around to his position. I think that's an interesting phenomenon. And then there's, again, there's just John Lewis as the civil rights figure, and you think about these different parts of his career. So you have this part of his career, his or his public life, rather, where he is this young activist. And then you kind of go on through the years, and he becomes this congressman. And he represents Atlanta, which, you know, that seat that he represented in Atlanta was really an important gateway for the rest of the country and the understanding what kind of black upper middle class society can look like. Uh, Atlanta is an, is a city with a lot of different communities. Lewis's district represents a cross section of those communities. Um, yes, there are some areas in Lewis's district that there's some there's poverty and, and there are um, you know kind of problems that are endemic with any American city. There are also areas of extreme wealth and black success and black elite education and um, you know elite black, achievement in the arts and in government. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a fascinating district when you look at it. Of course, those districts get gerrymandered and changed all the time, but he really did become the, the spokesperson and the ambassador to that part of Atlanta culture. Um, I think for so many black Americans, Atlanta is like black Hollywood, um, not just because of, you know, like the reality TV shows and there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of entertainers from Atlanta, but really because Atlanta is the experiment, right? It's the, it's the black cultural experiment of like, what does it look like when you see black wealth concentrated in one area or where you see black, um, you know, elite thinkers and black intellectuals concentrated in one area? That, that's Atlanta. And John Lewis represented that district appropriately for, um, I believe it was more than 30 years. I think 1988 was his first term in Congress, so we're talking like 32 years that he represented that area. But when Lewis was in Congress also, you got to remember, he didn't limit his fight just to talk about black Americans. And I made this point also this week um, as I talked about John Lewis's legacy. He fought for everyone's causes. And when I mean everyone, I mean every oppressed minority group out there. He was a fighter for those causes. He was an ally for the LGBTQ community, which, by the way, is a rather complicated decision for someone like John Lewis to make, given you know his background in theology and that there is an obvious tension um, between you know some kind of generational um, divide within the African American community about LGBT issues. But really, John Lewis was on the cutting edge there and was a real fighter for um, causes in, in Congress and for societal causes around LGBTQ equality. Um, he was an ally in making sure that LGBTQ Americans got the same fair treatment that he hoped that African Americans got the, the, the cause of his life, right? But John Lewis, I don't think, really saw a lot of space and distance between those two issues. So he was able to, um, you know, take the lessons that he learned in fighting for black civil rights and apply them to the LGBT cause. He was able to be an ally and to be someone in allegiance with many of his congressional colleagues who were fighting for migrant worker rights. You know, some of his most impassioned speeches and public appearances in recent years have been around uh, the issues with the Trump administration, locking up children at the border and, you know, some of the more disgusting, uh, you know, migrant issues 
um, rights acts that they've taken to restrict the rights and restrict the um, really just you know, create indignities. I'm searching for the words here, but it's hard to really explain what the Trump administration has done to these migrant communities. But really, when you think about it, it's the indignities that they've performed against, you know, undocumented migrants. Right. And John Lewis was an ally. He was side by side with people in Congress like Luis Gutierrez um, and so many others who, um, again, saw no space between the fight for black equality, black civil rights, and between uh, you know migrant rights, for women's issues, for women's um, equality and suffrage, etc. You know, John Lewis and really a lot of those folks who were um, a part of that early civil rights movement, I think, really applied the lessons from the women's suffrage movement. Um, and I think John Lewis always saw a straight line between the fight for women's suffrage and the fight for women's equality and the fight for African-American equality. But the, the point here is there was a comprehensive, you know, belief from John Lewis in the equality around human rights and just the basic, um, the, the basic desires for folks to be treated humanely. And I think he lived his life in a way that really reflected that. And so I think that these are all very, very, um, you know, important and meaningful things to take away from John Lewis's legacy. And now he belongs to the ages. And now it's up to us to tell the story of John Lewis, to tell it accurately, to tell it in full, and to make sure that all of the context is included. Some of the context I'm talking about here and so much more. But um, I'll share one personal remembrance of the congressman. Um, I actually had an opportunity in 2016, as many folks might know, I worked on the Hillary Clinton campaign in 2016. I was the uh, director of African-American uh, paid media advertising, essentially, which really m meant that I ran the advertising program geared towards African-American voters. Of course, in the process of doing that, you want to get a lot of black surrogates and black allies who support, uh, you know, Hillary Clinton at that time to go and be very vocal. And we were able to secure congressman lewis to do a radio spot for us uh that i can't remember where we ran but um you know we had a number of members of congress that we wanted to get obviously when the opportunity came up to get john lewis to cut a radio ad for you i mean th there's not really much thinking that goes into that like sure when can he do it and um i remember the day when i got a chance to you know come I actually had to travel from a campaign headquarters in new york in brooklyn down to dc and I was able to get the congressman to record it. It was actually um, over at a studio at the Democratic National Committee. And I remember when he walked in the room and, you know, I, I've, I worked in Congress with, um, you know, folks like John Lewis before, right? I, I was a communications director for Congresswoman Barbara Lee, great congresswoman uh, representing the Oakland, San Francisco Bay Area in California. Um, so you know, in that job, you get a chance to be around folks like Congressman Lewis and you really get to see them. But, you know, most staffers from other members, you don't really get to have sub substantive conversation with someone like John Lewis. And so this is the first time where I would actually get some one on one time with him. And the plan was he was going to come in. Um, I was going to share the script with him. He was accompanied by a staffer. I actually believe it was Michael Collins, who was his um, longtime uh, chief of staff. I think he was with him for nearly a decade or maybe even more than that um, really ushered him through the last decade or so of his public life but Michael's a good guy um, 
and the congressman comes in, give him the script, talk to him about what we want to accomplish with the ad, um, the humility, the, the, I mean, it's, it literally is like the Pope walking in the room. And <clears throat> I pretty quickly transformed from being a, a, an eager staffer who was trying to accomplish a job and trying to, to, to get a script recorded to just being someone who was just watching history happen. And I, I just remember being so humbled in his presence and almost wanting to like bow. I, I just, when I, when I saw him and, and, and you gotta remember too, John Lewis is about, was, was about five foot six. I'm a pretty tall guy, I'm about six two, six three. And so I'm, I'm giant <laughs> compared to him. I'm also a lot more LBs than John Lewis. We'll, we won't call out exact numbers, but um, John Lewis, comes in and he's just a saintly figure and he walks in and I'm um, pretty immediately just taken with just his charisma and his presence and he was very kind, very gracious and then he reads the ad and of course he nails it. I mean, he's John Lewis like what, you know, and then he turns and looks at me after he does the read. I think he did a second one. You know, usually you'll do like one or two reads just to get a couple of, uh, a couple of versions and he looks at me and he says did I Joel did I read that okay and you know and I've said this before I looked at him like he had five heads I said did you read it okay like what <laughs> you know it, it's it's all it was almost it was hilarious to me that he would think that some ad that me and a couple of like you know consultants like wrote <laughs> for him to read that like that wouldn't be sufficient and um, I just I think I said something to the effect of, yeah, yeah, Congressman, I think I think you nailed it. I think you read it. OK, I, I probably had I had more guts. I would have said, how about you just read what you want to read? How about how about we just turn the microphone on and you just tell me what you want to say and then I'll figure out how to make it into an ad. Uh, it was a pretty funny moment. I've told a number of my friends about that, but um, it was just something else to, to be in his presence. Again, we spent probably 10 or 15 minutes there and it was just precious time. Um, he was so kind. He actually took a photo with me, which normally I really try to go out of my way to not do um, celebrity type photos, especially with people who are public servants. One, as someone who's a former staffer, um, I think that there is a certain way I kind of feel about that. But I, I couldn't let the moment pass up for John Lewis. Um, and the reason why, and I said this in a remembrance on social media that I put up shortly after we learned of his passing, you know, I made a point to take that picture because, you know, one day I plan on being a dad and I plan on having kids and I want to be able to tell them that I worked with the great John Lewis and I want to be able to show them the proof. And I'd love to have my son or daughter come up to me one day and to point out that picture to me and say, dad. Tell me about this guy, and hopefully I'll do it some justice, just like I hope I did it some justice here. I want to join many people in sending my thoughts and my condolences to the Lewis family, um, to his son, John Miles, to the many staffers, the people around him who worked with him. He was a great man. He was one of the greatest Americans we ever produced. He's one of the greatest exports this country has ever given to the world. And the loss is immense. I feel it. So many other people feel it. And I'm just grateful that I got a chance to live and work in a time of John Lewis. And I got to play a small part in 
the history that he built. And I got a chance to stand on the broad shoulders of the great John Lewis. Thank you, sir, and rest well. It's the Here Comes the Pain podcast. I'm your host, Joel Payne. Again, we're presented by Hip Politics Network. Lots of great content there. would encourage you to check out. We're going to continue our conversation here in a moment. want to spend the last part of the podcast talking about the VP search process. And I want to be clear, I'm planning on actually putting out an episode, at least one episode next week, where we really dig deep into the different VP candidates. Um, what I'd like to do here today is talk about the VP search committee. But we'll do a deeper dive. We'll do kind of like a fun handicapping with some guests that I'm working on for the next episode next week. But again, we're going to talk VP process. We're going to specifically talk about um, a lot of the attention that's come around Kamala Harris lately and around that VP search committee that um, is getting awfully, awfully leaky in the last couple of days as we lead up to Vice President Biden making his decision about his running mate. We'll be back here on the Here Comes the Pain podcast. Again, I'm your host, Joel Payne. We'll be right back. And we're back. It's the Here Comes the Pain podcast. Again, I'm your host, Joel Payne. We're presented by Hip Politics Network. Lots of great content there. I would encourage you to check out. By the way, uh, some folks have told me in previous episodes that you have heard some noise in the background of these recordings. Um, this is no frills here. I'm in my living room recording, and usually what is probably happening in the background is me trying to get my dog to be quiet or me trying to wait for a loud truck outside of my apartment to go by. So you're getting the real uncut, unvarnished uh, Joel Payne experience here. This is not at a studio. We are in the era of coronavirus and the era of this pandemic. So we got to be creative and we got to record at home. But um, occasionally you might hear my beloved dog Roscoe in the background making some noise here and there. Um, maybe we'll do an interview with him sometime, but for now, he's actually behaving himself for the most part this episode. He is sitting right next to me as he loves to do, laid out like a old man who's worked 50 hours this week, which of course he hasn't. So anyways, shout out from Roscoe there. Okay, back to the episode. So wanted to finish the podcast this week by talking a little bit about the vice presidential search committee and, you know, Obviously, there's a lot to be talked about in terms of the different candidates, and um, I think the vice president has made a lot of public comments that have narrowed that field, right? He said in the middle of the primary fight with Bernie Sanders that he was going to pick a woman um, to be his running mate, which I think was incredibly, um, you know, a great thing to hear. I think it's it's certainly um, time for our first female vice president, and I think um, this will be a great moment. Um, when he chooses um, this woman, um, because I think a lot of Democrats will obviously see this as being a future leader in the party, probably somebody who um, at some point in the next four or eight years would would, you know, under if, if Joe Biden won and this was his vice president. I think a lot of Democrats see this as a person who um, would have a very good chance of being the first woman president. So this pick has a lot of significance. Um, and this moment has a lot of significance. Um, so Joe Biden has talked about you know, he's going to pick a woman. I think there's a lot of speculation that it will be a woman of color, uh, particularly a black woman. And I don't believe Biden has come out and particularly addressed that. I think um, most of the leading contenders are black women um, or women of color. Um, I think, you know, you go through the names, the leading contenders are Kamala Harris, Susan Rice, 
uh, Val Demings, um, Karen Bass, Congresswoman from the Los Angeles area in California, um, Stacey Abrams, Keisha Lance Bottoms, who's of course the mayor of Atlanta, Georgia, um, Elizabeth Warren, who was one of Joe Biden's rivals in the uh, 2020 Democratic primary, of course, Senator from Massachusetts, um, you know, folks like Gretchen Whitmer, the governor of Michigan. There's a lot of, lot of candidates out there. Michelle Lujan Grisham, uh, Hispanic governor of New Mexico. So there's a very deep pool of candidates out there. Um, something that doesn't always get a ton of attention, but I think is a pretty underrated part of any presidential campaign, particularly when you get to the general election, is who is chosen as a part of that committee that does the work of identifying VP candidates for the top of the ticket candidate to pick. Um, in 2008, you know, the, the search committee was essentially Eric Holder. Um, it was Caroline Kennedy Schlossberg, who's, of course, the daughter of um, late President John Kennedy. And um, I believe there was another person there whose name escapes me at the moment. But, um, you know, that was the committee in 2008 that came up with Joe Biden or came up with the recommendation for Joe Biden um, in, you know, 2020 now. Um, Joe Biden, I believe it was about two months ago where he announced his vice president search committee. That committee consists of four people. There is um, Delaware Congresswoman Lisa Blunt Rochester. There is former Connecticut Senator Chris Dodd. There's Los Angeles Mayor Eric Garcetti. And then there's former White House counsel, member of the White House counsel's office, Cynthia Hogan. Um, this is a pretty diverse group. Um, you know, you have um, Lisa Blunt Rochester, an African-American woman who represents Delaware in Congress. Um, of course, um, Delaware being the home state of Joe Biden. So I think you would imagine that she's somewhat of a Biden insider, kind of a part of that Delaware group that Joe Biden really um, has been the, um, you know, kind of really you know, viewed as kind of the leader of for God, 30 or 40 years because he was senator from Delaware for so long. Um, she was an intern in Tom Carper's office, um, and she has served in Congress since 2016. Chris Dodd, long-term, long-time former senator from Connecticut, served with Biden, served with Ted Kennedy, was very, um, you know, famously, um, you know, was the named person when you think about the Wall Street reform bill, when people talk about Dodd-Frank, that's Chris Dodd, right? He was the banking um, committee chair in 2010 when that passed also played a key role in the affordable care act because a lot of that legislation had to go through um the banking committee because you're talking about tax legislation so um you know chris dodd very well known to folks like me cynthia hogan a little bit less well known and then eric garcetti um who is um been the mayor of los angeles i want to say for more than five years now and um you know, has is of Mexican heritage as well. Um, his father was Gil Garcetti, who, um, you know, there's a name Garcetti. I remember the first time I heard that, I was like, Garcetti, Garcetti, Garcetti. That was the prosecutor who was the L.A. County prosecutor when O.J. Simpson stood trial. That's his son, right? Gil Garcetti was the dad. Eric Garcetti is his son. Eric Garcetti has been the mayor of Los Angeles for some time. So that's the four-person search committee. And this week... This past week, there was a story in Politico that talked about what Chris Dodd, who is, again, a member of the search committee, thought about Kamala Harris. And I want to read 
part of the story that kind of shook up DC a little bit and got a lot of uh, political Twitter to respond. I'm going to pull up the quote here. I want to read it right quick. This was a July 27 article in Politico, and the headline for the article is, quote, she had no remorse. And it says, why Kamala Harris isn't a lock for VP? And it's written from the perspective of a donor who recently spoke with Chris Dodd, again, a member of Biden's vice presidential search committee, about his thoughts about Kamala Harris. I imagine that Dodd was talking about all the candidates, but of course, these comments about Harris, who I think most people of you are doing kind of betting odds would think that she's the leader in the clubhouse and that she's got the best chance. Um, of course, people would be curious about Dodd. And, and the story leads off with an anecdote about Dodd and the committee questioning Kamala Harris about her you know, pretty aggressive attack on Joe Biden during the primary season. Most people will remember um, the debate where Kamala Harris was near the top of the polls. This is actually right before her ascent. And <clears throat> she attacked Joe Biden for some of his past positions about school busing. And this is, you know, this is a claim that's followed Biden around. Um, there are some quotes and some things from early in his political career that I think made some folks a tad uncomfortable with uh, Joe Biden and, you know, kind of some of these broader race issues. Again, no one's calling Joe Biden a race. No one, you know, I, I, I went on, I remember going on TV and I had to make the point, like, the point here is not that Joe Biden is a racist. The point here is that Joe Biden, you know, didn't display kind of the judgment that a lot of African-Americans might have hoped that he would have displayed at the time. And I think a more sanitized version or a, a more boring version of a Kamala Harris comment about that might sound a little bit like the latter part of what I just said. I think what came out during the debate was Kamala Harris gave a very impassioned, you know, personal anecdote about how as a young child, you know, she was impacted by busing and how, you know, she was disappointed in Joe Biden for his, you know, previous position on busing that she, she disagreed with. And of course, she's a, a contender for the presidency. She is she is a competitor with Joe Biden at the time. At that time, she was actually leading in the polls and it looked like, um, you know, Biden was the one who was on the ropes and she had a pretty effective attack on Biden. Um, I think you know, just really, again, transporting us back to what seems like it was about 30 years ago, which was last fall when this all happened, these these debates where these issues came up. I think what's different is that Kamala Harris was not able to follow up on that and there was no follow through. And actually, there was some inconsistency with her own positions um, around, you know, some of the same issues she was attacking Biden on. So I think that's why that ultimately did not end up being the type of boost that she hoped it was. And I actually think that a lot of people see that as kind of the beginning of her slide that led her to prematurely getting out of the race, even before the first uh, caucus in Iowa, the first primary in New Hampshire. You know, she got out before any of the primary season contest started. So anyways, you know, Chris Dodd is, is part of the search committee and they're talking to Kamala Harris about what happened during this debate obviously these are you know biden loyalists biden allies and they're kind of like what gives why'd you go after biden so hard and uh, according to dodd's retelling of the moment in in this story from politico uh, senator harris kamala harris says she laughed and said that's politics and dodd's point to a 
another longtime Biden supporter and donor was she had no remorse. Thus, they put she had no remorse in the headline of the story. And then it kind of goes on to how the donor, of course, now speaking for Chris Dodd, um, obviously representing a, a very long flowing conversation with Chris Dodd, said, quote, Dodd felt it was a gimmick that it was cheap. The donor said the person added that Dodd's concerns about Harris were so deep that he's helped elevate California Representative Karen Bass during the vetting process, urging Biden to pick her because, quote, she's a loyal number two. And that's what Biden really wants. Through an aide, Dodd declined to comment. Advisors to Harris also declined to comment. Okay, so I just kind of want to frame this up for folks who may, you know, may not follow what's going on here. Kamala Harris was a competitor of Joe Biden's in the 2020 Democratic primary. She made a very tough political attack on Biden um, back in the fall, back when the campaign was very much still wide open when it was anybody's race. When again, in fact, Kamala Harris was ahead in the polls by many estimations at that time. And of course, Biden went on to win the primary and is obviously now the candidate. Um, but many Biden insiders and loyalists felt like that she went too far in her attack because she kind of intimated that Joe Biden had a race problem there. Now, you know, Kamala Harris did not come out and say all those things. She did not put that context around it that many people have kind of put on her comments there. But really, she was making a political point about Joe Biden that like, this is who you were in the 70s. And this is how it impacted me. And of course, you know, Kamala is responsible for that attack. And so the Biden folks feel like Kamala took a cheap shot at him and that they feel like Kamala Harris did not display loyalty because even though these are competitors, we're in a Democratic primary and we're all supposed to be on the same team, which is all true. Right. All of these multiple things that are pointing in different directions that are kind of um, contrasting each other. They're, they're all true. But. What you saw was a backlash from political Twitter because essentially what this story became boiled down to was Chris Dodd criticizing Kamala Harris or having a problem with Kamala Harris because she displayed some ambition and kind of went for the crown, so to speak, um, when she was in shouting distance of the presidency, um, you know, during the primary campaign back in the fall. And I think this kind of reflected what many people feel, you know, look, we're less than two weeks away from the from Joe Biden announcing his VP pick. So obviously the jockeying and the internal positioning is heating up. And I think mo most people assume that this shows is that, you know, Harris is near the top or at the top of the list. And these are Biden loyalists who are really through media emissaries trying to, you know, attack Kamala Harris. and. Um, trying to bring her down and trying to hurt her chances of being vice president. And you really did see a lot of people go on um, Twitter in particular and really go out of their way to kind of give it to Chris Dodd. Um, you know, I saw one from Hillary Rosen, who is a CNN um, political uh, commentator and, um, you know, very well-known Democratic um, strategist who basically, um, you know, kind of suggested that Chris Dodd shut up um, and, and that, you know, it was it was wrong for the Biden folks to allow these types of criticisms of Kamala Harris to come out. Um, by the way, separate from this, Ed Rendell, who um, for folks who may not know, is the former mayor of Philadelphia, former governor of Pennsylvania 
and about the same age as Chris Dodd. These are both men in their late 70s who also about the same age as Joe Biden. These are Biden loyalists. These are people who are in the vice president's inner circle. Ed Rendell, about three days later, made very similar comments about Kamala Harris, talking about how she maybe didn't display loyalty. And I think what is inferred in their comments is that Kamala's too ambitious. She would not be the type of number two that Joe Biden would want because she would be seeking higher office and she would be seeking attention, you know, because of the obvious tension that Joe Biden, in some estimations, might consider being a one term president. And so essentially you're going to have a situation potentially where his vice president would maybe, you know, like say in 2022, already be considering running for president. Okay, so there's, there's, there's a lot of things going on here. So here's my kind of big picture take. I think this displays a little bit of a blind spot for Joe Biden in judgment. And here's why. To put Chris Dodd on this search committee at this moment, I, I just think it kind of reflects poor judgment about where we are as a country, but particularly I'm talking as a Democrat now, where the Democratic Party is. Chris Dodd, and I say this with all intended respect, is, is a relic of the past. Um, you know, he, many other folks would be considered a relic of the past, too. I mean, look, I used to work for Harry Reid. I don't I don't know if Harry Reid is like pushing the button for who the who, who you know, what the party is doing right now. He's 80 something years old. Um, he's, you know, about five or 10 years past when he was really relevant in Democratic Party politics. Like, I'm not I'm not picking on my, my former boss here. I'm, I'm just kind of making the point that, like, with the advance of time and the advance of history, certain voices kind of are moved to the periphery and they're moved to the outside. Chris Dodd would be one of those voices that you would think would be treated as such. Same with Ed Rendell. These are not folks who are really kind of at the heart of Democratic Party politics right now. It's a very different different Democratic Party that they were a part of and that they played prominent roles in some, you know, 20, 25 years ago or even 15 years ago. It's a very different party now from what it was then. You know, when Chris Dodd was a senator, there were different norms. There were different norms about how women were treated in government. There were different norms about what was expected in terms of diversity. Um, and by the way, you know, I, I, I like Chris Dodd. I actually have a number of friends who worked for Senator Chris Dodd. Uh, Chris Dodd did a lot of good stuff and was a good Democrat and kind of did a lot to advance beliefs and ideas that I support and I believe in. So this, this is not personal about him, but this is to reflect that this is kind of bad judgment by the Biden campaign and by Vice President Biden in particular to put somebody like that in this position of influence here. And I do think it kind of signals something that the vice president and his campaign have to be careful with, which is not allowing what is comfortable to be what guides them here. Um, and I do think that that's a theme that you may see a bit within the Biden orbit. You know, people like Ted Kaufman, who, by the way, was appointed to Biden's Senate seat after Vice President Biden elevated to the vice presidency. He was a chief of staff for a former vice president. Um, he is somebody who is, again, of a similar age to these other old white men. OK, and let me just kind of open up the let me open up the blinds a little bit here for everybody. 
you have a lot of old white men who are talking about younger black women and they're telling them to suppress their ambition and they're telling them that they need not show that they actually um, want to achieve something or that they need not talk about um, you know what they want to do and they, they like like essentially you have these old white men who are criminalizing um, the the professional drive and the professional purpose of some of these um, younger and in many cases women of color and I do think there's a phenomenon there that's going on now, of course he you know he elevates Karen Bass as a way to almost kind of like um, you know protect what he's saying I'm talking about Chris Dodd here you know in, in the story he's like well you know what about Karen Bass and that's problematic too because now you're pitting these black women against each other and you're saying well she'll be loyal and she won't there's a lot of problematic behavior here that um, really speaks to the importance of diversity and having a diverse array of voices at the table and then let's talk about diversity now again these are a lot of Biden insiders these are people who are not just you know it's not just Chris Dodd and Ed Rendell who are like again older white men like Joe Biden but you also have people who are like Biden loyalists to the core who maybe don't have an outside opinion one of the things um, that was, I think, helpful for Barack Obama is that he really did not have like a political entourage in the same way that someone like a Joe Biden had. And I think that actually made it easier for, you know, Barack Obama when he was seeking counsel to make sure that the counsel he was getting was not just from like a small cadre, a small group of people who had been kind of influences forever and who had never had to consider what other folks might um, be thinking. Even with all that, by the way, Obama got criticized in the first, you know, months in the first year of his presidency because a lot of people thought his inner circle had too many white men. Now these were younger white men, and he, you know, the the um, the thought was that this was a boys' club. But again, it's just about group dynamics here, and I'm harping on this because as a black man in politics, it's something that you kind of see a lot: is you see groupthink. And groupthink is particularly lethal when you consider who's in the group and who's a part of the group. And I think here, you know, again, this is free advice for a former vice president. I don't work on his campaign. I do um, have every intention and I'm very excited to vote for him um, because I think he'll be a great president. But, you know, they have to make sure that they do not fall victim to groupthink like this. And I think it'll be incredibly important that they do not allow kind of a small group of like-minded individuals to control how they are thinking, particularly now. And this is the last point I'll touch on. We're at a moment in our country and within the Democratic Party where it is more important than ever to reflect a commitment to a diverse array of voices. And having your 77-year-old white male former Senate committee counterpart okay going and publicly talking about your vice presidential choices potentially in this way that are gonna really be negative to them and will really cast you know negative aspersions on their ambition I, I, I don't think that's a good idea I think um, and, and it does appear that you know Senator Dodd was reined back in a bit um, there was a story uh, two days after that initial story that I read where um, apparently there was a call 
made by some allies of Senator Harris, um, where they, you know, kind of reaffirmed the case for Harris and, you know, tried to clear the air. And during that call, Dodd made a point of saying a lot of positive things about Senator Kamala Harris. So that's, you know, I'm a, I'm a comms guy. That's, that's clean up on aisle five. Like that's, <laughs> though that that is a very purposeful story to be put out there to demonstrate that Dodd has an open mind on this and really that's the only way I think Dodd could have remained a part of the process otherwise you know you have a real skunk in the room on the process so I think they had to do some pretty quick damage control on that um, but having these influencers around the former vice president I do think that that is something that makes a lot of Democrats nervous about Biden's candidacy is he is very much a old style politician who's comfortable with the ways of old now that, that doesn't mean that joe biden doesn't believe in progressive issues and is not committed to progress and to fighting for folks who don't look like him i actually think joe biden has demonstrated that but you got to live the gimmick okay and living the gimmick does not include having chris dodd as a central part of your vp search committee i think there were a number of other choices that probably could have been made that would not have created so much discomfort. And I'll just say this. If you do some additional research on Chris Dodd and Chris Dodd, particularly um, with his reputation when he was a senator, um, I think it demonstrates why it's even more problematic that he m would be really leaky about something like this, like talking very negatively to talk down one of joe biden's leading candidates and i'll, I'll leave it at that i don't want to i don't want to dig into the chris dot oppo file but if you guys are interested in doing that you go ahead and do that again have a lot of respect for his accomplishments professionally and i think he you know was a very good democrat and i think he was good for his time but i do think that part of a campaign is reflecting where you're going not just where you've been and i think that a lot of democrats even when that happened were somewhat disappointed that someone like Chris Dodd was chosen as a part of that committee. And I think that what we saw with this story and how it broke out over the last couple of uh, the last couple of days, I think that that is a, a that that is a living manifestation of what folks might have been concerned about. So anyways, the lesson here, make sure you are doing the work to have uncomfortable conversations by having people who don't look like you at the table. This is the importance and this is the meaning of diversity. All right. This is the Here Comes the Pain podcast. I'm your host, Joel Payne. We're presented by Hip Politics Network. Lots of great content there. Would encourage you to check out. Appreciate you joining for this episode of the Here Comes the Pain podcast. Appreciate you giving me some space to take a couple of days to get my thoughts together about the great congressman and deliver some good content for you here today. Just as a heads up, next week, we will be digging into the vice presidential search, not just talking about the vice presidential search committee, but we'll actually be talking about the candidates. I've got some good guests planned that um, we'll, we'll try to get recorded and try to get out to you before that announcement is made about um, who Joe Biden will pick as his running mate. In the meantime, keep an eye on our Instagram account at Here Comes the Pain Pod. That's at Here Comes the Pain P-O-D for the latest updates about the show and the latest updates about my appearances. Keep track of me on Twitter at P-A-Y-N-E-D-C. That's at Payne D-C. And with that, I'll talk to you next week. Have a great weekend, and thanks for joining the show. Take care.